0: And Welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and Hollywood as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. I'm David Chen from SlashFilm.com and joining me today, he is the man who played Roger in the TV series Café American, Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing very good. Boy, Roger, this is one of those jobs that I felt like could have gone either way. And it turned out to be a, gr- a great boon for me. Uh boy, I don't know. But
0: yeah, C- C- Cafe American is a television series that ran for it looks like 1 year uh that was created by Peter Noah yeah, and starred uh, Valerie Bertinelli.
1: And did you follow the track of Peter Noah and me after that? Because it was I believe right after that Peter Noah and I did Dweebs. Mm. And and I and then later I believe we did Mr. Rhodes. Peter and I had a uh, but I think it all began with this Café American. And what
0: Excuse me, Stephen. It's Café American. Oh, Café so, American. So, so sorry. I didn't see the oopslon over the end there. Café American. And,
1: and what, <laughs> what it was was I was playing a stodgy American businessman who – Finally decides to quote let his hair down. No jokes, David. No jokes on that. To let his hair down and uh, to be a free spirit in Paris, and then I get electrocuted on the Eiffel Tower. But what happened? I've discussed this on the Tobolowski files before. The time when an actor gets fired is at the network run-through. You 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 have like one chance in front of your producers and the writers. Then the next run-through is for uh, network, and if something screws up, usually the guest cast get fired. In this case, that was me. And the way the script was written was they put in a lot of—I hate to use the word—but kind of cliches of American businessmen that I was crude, I was chasing women, all of this stuff at the beginning of the script— And nothing was getting laughs because in my head, I knew it didn't make any sense. And I knew in my heart I was about to get fired. So the only time in my life I ever did this, I stopped the network run through. I stopped it and said, guys, hold it. We have to decide what we're doing here. If A story doesn't end where it begins, and it doesn't begin where it ends. And if you're going to have me becoming a free spirit at the end of this story, then at the beginning, I can't be doing all of these scenes. I've got to be more stodgy. I've got to be more a man bent on his own work. I can't do that. And instead of getting fired, wonder of wonder, miracle of miracles, they rewrote the script, the show I thought was delightful, and Peter, Noah, and I went on to work on several other different shows together. So it was one of those rare cases where uh, I got the bear instead of the bear getting me. It was it was very scary. It was one of the scariest— Pretty,
0: pretty ballsy, Stephen. And if only all of us could stop our firing as it was happening in progress. Uh, but yeah, yeah.
1: If only that could happen. Oh, my gosh.
0: <sighs> yeah, uh, but nice, nicely done, Stephen. Uh, you know, working on a lot of TV shows, uh, as you've told these stories over the years, one thing that's pretty clear to me, and actually, you know, seeing you travel around the country, flying nonstop, uh, you know, performing late at night, and then you got to fly the next morning, early in the morning, um, it's, it strikes me that there is a lot of uh, physical endurance needed to, uh, to do what you do, but also that, you, you know, you kind of, do you have any tactics for uh, either uh, figuring out how to preserve your energy or, uh, or how to unwind after like uh, a 16-hour day or anything like that? Let's see. Um, well, I got drunk the other night. <laughs> <Yeah. I'm,
1: laughs> sorry. No, it's the truth. I had just finished a long and difficult shoot and I felt like I was on the verge of collapse and I wanted to reward myself by finishing off the job. So I went to one of my favorite places in the Valley for martinis. And I was one and a half martinis into it before I realized I was trying to eat my soup with a fork. I got home and I turned on Chopped. And I'd seen this episode before. But I still got so wound up when the young chef who owns a food truck forgets to use his guava paste. I felt his humiliation so keenly. I walked away from the television into the bathroom area. And I saw myself in the mirror. In the cold half-light, half-darkness cast by my television set, I saw the real me. It was distressing. I looked terrible in jeans. Worse than terrible. I looked like I needed to tie my pants up with rope. Worse than that. I looked like one of those guys who wears drawstring pants with suspenders and a Grateful Dead t-shirt in an attempt to tell the world, I know I've given up. But I used to be cool. My body had lost its shape. I remember earlier in the year when we were shooting one day at a time, my costume pants started falling down. I was proud that I'd been working so hard and avoiding the snack tables that I had lost weight. I went to the customer and said I probably need to go down a size. He looked at me and said, No, Stephen, your waist is the same size. You just lost your ass. I lost my ass. I didn't even know that was a possibility. Instead of despair, I relied on my philosophy that I've developed over a lifetime of unexpected catastrophe and even more unexpected bounty. Here it is. Everything is a doorway. And everything is a prison. And I mean everything. When disaster strikes, remember there's a doorway somewhere. Find it. And when you're rolling in the good times, keep telling yourself not to get lost in the confetti and champagne bubbles. There is a prison here, too. Be vigilant. With martinis, the prison is usually the hangover. The doorway, in this case, was how I looked in the mirror. It was awful, but it was a gift. For a brief moment, I could see myself as others see me. Yeah. Over the years, I found that difficult to do. When I was in college, it was hard to see me through my desperation to succeed. When I became a father, my appearance included the fear of my next big mistake. Now, after one and a half martinis, I only look like me. Like when I was a child. Except without an ass. In the background, I heard the name of the young chef being chopped, well, He knew it was coming. He missed a compulsory ingredient. I looked with a new clarity at my young old face and I saw something in my eyes I had missed all these years. The doorway and prison of my life. I saw the reflection of a man easily seduced by unexpected encouragement. Encouragement comes in different forms. Some good, some not so good. It can bring hope when all has been lost. It can make you blunder on when you should have stopped. As Jim McClure and I tore down the I-20 to Shreveport, en route to New York for our first big professional jobs, three months of summer stock in the Catskill Mountains, I had no idea that the greatest dangers from Joan Potter were still waiting for me upon my return. At this moment, I felt encouraged. My optimism didn't come from anything real. It came from my reflection in the passenger-side mirror of Jim's Mustang. I liked what I saw. Shaggy hair, blue eyes. It was hard to suppress my smile. I was in love. I was on an adventure. But not like the adventures I went on down at the creek with the dangerous animals club catching water moccasins. Those were only diversions from homework. After the age of ten, I never saw snakes as part of any viable career path like a kiss from Beth. I was encouraged that I had reached that rare moment when my adventure had become my life. Jim turned on the radio. It was, I Hear Ya Knockin', one of his favorites. He began singing. His voice was not as pleasing as his whistle. So, Rumi, I've been thinking. Yeah, I said. Well, maybe we don't have to go to Broadway. What do you mean, Jim. Well, theater's catching on all across the country. Actors Theater, Louisville, Oregon, Shakespeare, PCPA, and Santa Maria. It's a new thing. What if we stayed in Dallas? Stayed in Dallas, I asked? Yeah. You and me could start, say, the Actors Theater at Dallas. We could end up like the Alley in Houston. Start our own theater? Why not? When you're an actor, you're always looking for the next play. But when you run a theater... You choose the next play. We could direct, we could act, we could do whatever we want. You wrote that stupid play freshman year. Maybe you want to write someday. Well, it's possible, but Jim, I wouldn't even know where to start. Rumi, that's the beauty of thinking big. You start at the top. All we would need is an empty building. I bet you the city has plenty of those they'd love to get off their hands. We'd get a little money to do our first productions. Dallas is an arts town. Right now, they only have two real theaters and the place at school. We could bridge the gap. Jim popped the top of a Coors and took a drink. We, we both started singing along with the radio, beating out time on the dash. Knock, 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 I you, you knocking, but you can't come in. Yeah, that's the trouble when you're 20. You can't come in. There's nowhere to go. You have school with no future, jobs with no money, sex with no marriage, marriages that are doomed to fail. All you have left is beer, and getting loaded isn't as fun when it's an occupation and not a reward. But everything is a prison. Everything is a doorway. The doorway to the prison of being 20 is that you have the freedom to invent a future and the energy to pursue it. At 20, the rallying cry is, why not? The idea that Jim and I could start a professional theater on the scale of the Folger in Washington, D.C. seemed no more challenging to us than waking up before 11 on Saturday, which was difficult but doable. We crossed the state line, the first of many. Jim didn't know it, but I had been in Shreveport before. I competed at a speech tournament here in high school. Our school stayed at a place called the Mid-City Motor Hotel and Hospital. The hospital was on floors two and four. The hotel was on three. You had to make sure you got off on the right floor or you could get triage for a tonsillectomy. I'm not making this up. Patients and hotel guests checked in at one lobby. There were two desks. One with a nurse, one with a young fellow with acne wearing a sport coat. I had to share an elevator once with a man with a tracheotomy headed for surgery. My first and lasting impressions of Shreveport was that it was a city of infinite surprise. We arrived at Jim's house before supper time. I met his mother and his sisters Jenny and Mariana. Jim vanished somewhere. I was left alone talking to Mariana until Jim's father came home. I heard a voice that reminded me of a deeper, more rugged version of Jim. Who brought the Coors? Oh, Jim and his roommate are here, said Mrs. McClure. Mr. McClure came in and looked me over. He offered me his hand. If handshaking were a competition, he won. So, you're Tobo? Uh, yes, sir. You just drive in? Yes, uh, Jim said we had to be here by supper time. Mr. McClure smiled. Well, he's right about that. We'll go bowl up some shrimp. Say, how about a drink? You know, unwind from the trip? Oh, sure. Thank you. Well, I'm a bourbon man. How about you, he asked. Uh, same here. You can't beat bourbon, I replied. How you like it? Straight. Straight shot sounds good to me. Mr. McClure smiled. Coming right up. Tobo, you bring your trunks? "'Excuse me?' "'Swim trunks. Got a nice pool. Hot tub.' "'Really?' I said. "'Brand new. You get suited up. I have your drink waiting for you.' "'Yes, sir. Thank you.' I dug my swimsuit out from under my theater library and scurried outside. Mr. McClure was already parboiling in the jacuzzi nursing his bourbon on the rocks. I picked up my bourbon shot, started sipping it as I stepped into the bubbles. "'Damn!' I had no idea bourbon was so terrible. Still no sign of Jim. I eased into the scalding water. Mr. McClure was staring at little clouds in the perfectly blue late afternoon sky. Well you like the pool. Well, it's beautiful, sir, I said. Very peaceful out here. I took another sip. I felt the bourbon start to cauterize my insides. Tell me, is it Tobo or Topo? Uh, Tobo or Stephen... Mr. McClure sighed with pleasure as he surveyed his domain. Tobo, I'm a lucky man. I have the best job in the world. Life insurance. I'm a good salesman, probably one of the best. You know why? Uh, no, sir. I love my job, Tobo. I love my job. And what's most important, I know what my job is. What do you think life insurance is? Um making sure your family has money when you die? No, bad salesmen think life insurance is about death. It's about life tobo, in best possible way. It's about loving life, respecting life. I just ask people one question: Who do you love? Your wife, your little girl? Well, give them a gift they'll cherish and remember for their entire lives. I see. As I was talking with Mr. McClure, I was learning the third rule of public drinking. Don't drink whiskey in a jacuzzi. The heat in the swim trunk seems to multiply the effect. Uh, Stephen? Uh, yes, sir? Mr. McClure slid closer to me and spoke confidentially. Is Jim good? Excuse me, I asked. At what he does, is acting. I know he's won awards, but we live in Shreveport. Is he good? Oh, yes, sir. He's one of the best at our school. And are you good? There was no nonsense in Mr. McClure's eyes. He expected an answer. I I think so, sir. I do. Well, you two good enough to be professionals? he asked. The bourbon was having an effect. I wanted to open my heart to Jim's father. Well, here's the thing about that, sir. I think to be really good at acting, you need experience. To get experience, you need opportunity. And usually, to get an opportunity, Mr. McClure laughed in appreciation, you got to have experience. Yes, sir. That's what they call Catch-22. I guess. But anyway, that's why we're going to New York. The money doesn't matter. But we'll come back with experience. When you come back, what, you get a degree? No, I, d- I don't care about a degree. I don't want to teach. Jim was thinking maybe we could, we could put together our own theater in Dallas, do some classics, even experimental drama. Will the people come to see these kind of plays, Tobo? They do at our school. If we opened up a theater near the campus, I bet we could get a good audience, and we could probably get a lot of free technical help on sets and lights from people in our department looking for experience. Mr. McClure smiled. So what do you guys need? Well, sir, we need a place, maybe a little storefront, a deserted building we could convert into a theater. doesn't have to be fancy. In fact, Jim is right. It's better if it's not fancy. I grew up going to Theater 3 in downtown Dallas. They were in an old garage. We could open up with some simple plays of Pinter or Beckett, small casts, inexpensive, but most importantly, they're great plays we can make a name for ourselves producing quality. And then we could attract writers and do new plays, but we would call the shots. Well, what you need in terms of money, money to start. Oh, gosh, I don't know, I said. Mr. McClure looked up at the sky for a moment, then to me. Well, how about 40000 What? $40,000. Enough to get going? Well, it, it, it's probably enough for our whole first year. It's yours. I'll write you a check tonight. I sat in stunned silence amid the churning bubbles. Mr. McClure continued, You see, Tobo, in life insurance, you get a good sense of people. I could tell you and Jim love what you do. The only question is, do you really know what your job is? Um, to act, I said. Is it? Well, to entertain. Mr. McClure smiled and shook his eyes, finished off his drink. I don't know, Tobo. I'm asking you. Jim appeared out of nowhere. Hey, you guys look cozy. Am I interrupting anything? Well, I was just telling Tobo here I'd like to be your partner on this theater you want to start. I'm giving you $40,000 tonight. You can start when you get back in the fall. Jim looked at me looked at the ground, then looked at his father, and then said quietly, "'Thanks, but no. "'We need to work out the details before we borrow any money.' "'Well, not alone, loan, Jim. It's a gift,' said his father. "'No. We have to figure out what we're going to do. "'We have to see who's going to help us in Dallas before we take your money, Dad, "'but thanks for the offer.' We were silent for a few eternities before Mr. McClure made an effort. You want to jump in? Water's nice. Nah, said Jim. Almost time for dinner. After we ate, Jim and I were hit by exhaustion. The prospect of a long tomorrow sent us to bed early. Jim stuck his head in to see if I was settled into the guest bedroom. So you got everything, he asked. Yeah, Jim, thanks. Jim started to leave. Hey, Jim... I said. Jim came back. Yeah. Why'd you turn him down? What? Why did you turn your dad down? He had the money. He wanted to help us. It was right there. Jim shut the door and spoke with a quiet intensity that scared me. He's my father. Right? He's my father. I'm not taking $40,000 from him. We don't know what we're doing. We could lose it all. He knows that, Jim. I think he just wanted to say he believes in you. Stay out of it. All right. I was just excited he wanted to help. You could be excited all you want. But if we lose this money, it's going to be on me. I can't afford it. I'm sorry if I did anything wrong, Jim. Don't worry about it. If we're going to make this theater work, we'll do it on our own terms. Then if we fail, we fail. The only thing I owe is money. Well, sure, Jim, it it just seemed like the money was a way of saying that he cared about your future. Jim leaned down and looked me in the eye. Well, I can't afford the interest. Jim turned out the light and walked down the hall to his bedroom. I looked up at the strange ceiling amidst strange pillows, and wondered what a dream looks like in Louisiana. We hit the road early, headed north by northeast. My first and most lasting impression of our country is that we have a lot of trees, tons of them. It led me to ask the philosophical question, did I think there were lots of trees because there are, or did I think there were lots of trees because this is where they put the road? The drive did finally answer another philosophical question, if a tree falls in the middle of the forest and no one hears it, does it make a sound? Yes, it does. But it doesn't matter. We stopped mid-morning at a roadside shack that had a sign that just said, Fruit. It was scrawled unevenly on a ragged piece of plywood propped up by the roadside. We both got something called fruit shakes. Very tasty. Jim shocked me by handing over the Mustang keys. Almighty oh, mighty Polak, why won't you drive for a while? Well, glad to, Jim. You tired already? No, just feel like writing. We got in the car. Jim pulled out a spiral notebook and began taking notes. So what are you writing, I asked. No, just ideas. About what? Don't know yet. You know, maybe a book, maybe a play. Gosh, Jim, I didn't even know you wanted to write. Well, somebody's got to do it, especially if we're going to have our own theater. Hey, maybe you could be our playwright in residence. Could be. Hey, you know, everyone praises Stanislavsky. He's our god. But I bet he'd be lost to history if it weren't for Chekhov. It was those plays that made Stanislavsky famous, not the other way around. I started driving the eyes. Our route took us from I-20 to I-59 to 75 to 81. Occasionally, we left the direct line of flight to explore local color or eat local food. I found some things amazing about the places we visited that weren't even dots on the map. One, that people lived here. Two, how many sandwich shops there were. Three, that none of the towns had live theater. And four, that all of the towns, no matter how small, had a trophy shop. Just like the miles of trees, I wasn't sure if what I was seeing was true or if it was just where they put the road. We took one unusual detour. We passed a small cemetery. Jim told me to pull over. He wanted to investigate. There appeared to be no gate, no name, just a dozen tombstones down by a creek. Most of the graves were from the beginning of the 20th century. A few were older. We weren't sure how this place came to be. Our best theory was that there used to be a church here. Maybe it burned down or was washed away. The congregants moved elsewhere. They left the graves behind. Jim studied the tombstones and wrote notes in a spiral. "'What are you writing?' I asked. "'Just the last words. Here's one. "'To my beloved husband at rest in the arms of God, 1918.'" Gosh, what do you think? The war? Yeah, maybe the war, maybe the flu, maybe he fell off a tractor, who knows? It's just it's just none of that matters here. See, you got limited space, So she just wrote what was essential, that he was beloved and that he's in God's arms. That's it. Last words are important. Everything else vanishes. I don't know about you, but I almost feel like I know the guy. I was anxious to drive. We only had four or five hours before the sun went down. We were nearing the mountains. The map did not look promising in terms of finding towns large enough to have cheap motels. We lost the race against the rotation of the earth. We got caught in the middle of Nowheresville, population zero. When you drive in the mountains of Tennessee at night, the only thing you're sure of is night. There are no mountains, no stars. You can only see the distance of your headlights. Jim speculated it would be better for us to pull off the road and sleep, get a fresh start at dawn. Like it or not, we were stuck. But everything is a prison, and everything is a doorway. I will never forget our night on the mountain. I pulled off the road in utter and complete blackness. I opened the door and was hit by mountain air. It was cold and clean and wet. The air had volume, like you could touch it, hold it. It felt good to breathe it in. Jim pulled out a blanket he had in the trunk and laid it on the ground by the car. Yeah, today was a good day, said Jim. Yeah, tomorrow we could take a shot at New York if we feel up to it. Yeah, we won't, said Jim. We sat in the darkness. I couldn't see Jim a foot away from me. There was no up or down, no right or left. From nowhere, Jim said, What's going to happen to Beth and you? Well, I'll call her when I get to New York, I said. Weren't you going to miss her? I don't understand you two. You're inseparable. I figure you would have tried to stuff her in that suitcase of yours instead of those stupid books. It's going to break your heart. I don't want to be there when you start crying. Leave me alone, Jim. You're awful sensitive. Drop it. You know, if you had sex with her, you'd feel a lot better. So would she. Shut up. It's none of your business what happens between us. At least I really love someone. You think I don't? What, you have someone? There was no response. Jim? Oh, mighty Polak, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. I haven't seen you with anyone. Well, I'm a lonely guy. If I had to carve your tombstone today, what would be on it? He was lonely? Hey, man, I'd be dead. You're the carver. What would you say? I would say he loved the theater and beer and the stars in the CPL parking lot, and he will be missed. The stars. Damn, the stars. Rumi, what? The stars. I'm seeing stars, but they're below us. We're upside down. Huh? Look. Jim was right. The blackness beneath us was filled with stars. It was impossible. Just a few. And then more and more. And then there were constellations. Hundreds. Then thousands. Then the stars began to move. Jim, it's lightning bugs. It's lightning bugs. My God. The million points of light appeared in the chasm beneath us. Some broke off into small swirls, other into huge circles. It was like we were gods at the creation of a new universe. Must be a mountain valley beneath us, I said. Does that mean you almost drove us off the edge of a cliff? Yeah, probably, I said. Hey, look, they're coming this way, said Jim. Millions and millions of points of light started moving in waves up the mountain. Where is Dylan Thomas when you need him, I whispered. Soon we were in the middle of the swarm. They were above, they were below, fore, aft, aft. We had lightning bugs in Oak Cliff when I was little. We'd catch them in a jar. Thanks for that tidbit, old master of peripheral knowledge. I think they light up to mate. Yeah, join the club. The lightning bugs started landing on us, turning on and off. Now I can make out Jim's shape in the dark. He brushed them off his sweater. So what are lightning bugs exactly? Jim asked. Beetles, I said. So we're getting covered with beetles? Yeah. Then we should go, said Jim. Yeah. And just like that, Jim and I left the wonders of the mountain behind, proof that the miraculous is often a matter of perspective. We kept finding beetles in our clothes the next day. However, the miracle on the mountain had an effect. Now that we were aware that they were no ordinary bugs, we could no longer smush them. Whenever we stopped to stretch our legs, we tried to relocate them to pleasant-looking clumps of grass with a view of the mountain in case they wanted to go back home. It was clear we weren't going to make it to Forestburg that day unless the Mustang had a gear for time travel. But I had an interesting thought. What if we took a detour to Pennsylvania? We could visit Granny in Troop. I could introduce Jim to Uncle Ben and Aunt Esther. We could see if Paul Freeman, the man with the purple nose, was still at the ice cream store. Maybe get some butter pecan. Jim pulled out a spiral notebook and pen. Great idea. I always wanted to see the genetic swamp from which you emerged. So we changed our flight plan. We arrived in Troop late that afternoon. Granny was thrilled to see me. Ben was laughing and telling jokes. I asked Esther about Paul Freeman. Oh, he's still there, Stevie. He's been in poor health, but he still runs the store. You want to go visit? I'm sure he's there now. He'd love to see you. Jim, Aunt Esther, and I walked across George Street to Freeman's Sundries. Paul Freeman was sitting on a rocker by the ice cream counter. Paul, we have visiting royalty, said Aunt Esther. Paul saw me, and his face broke into the biggest smile. Oh, my God! Stevie! Little Stevie! You're so big now! I shook his hand. Mr. Freeman, so good to see you. This is my friend and ex-roommate from college, Jim McClure. Jim smiled and offered his Osmobile dealer handshake. Mr. Freeman, Jim McClure. Jim, so nice to meet you. What brings you two here? Well... We're on our way to do summer stock in the Catskills, I said. Is that right? Is that right? So you grew up to be an actor? Yes, sir. Stevie, what was the name of that monster you always used to travel around with? I. That was was I, the monster. Paul Friedman laughed. That's right. It was I. I, the monster. I remember you come in here with your Uncle Ben, and Ben would order two ice cream cones, one for you and one for I, the monster. And then Ben would eat I's ice cream, but he would always talk to him and ask permission like, Boy, this looks good, I. What? Would I like a taste? Well, sure. That's awfully kind of you. And then Ben would eat the ice cream. As a matter of fact, Mr. Freeman, I've been telling Jim about the butter pecan ice cream here. Jim piped in, Yes, sir. It's legendary. So you think we could get a couple scoops? Paul Freeman got a serious look on his face and pointed to the empty chairs positioned around the rocker. Have a seat, boys. Jim and I sat down. Paul went back to the rocker. Esther stood at the ice cream counter preparing to listen to an old story. Boys, I don't scoop ice cream anymore. I developed a metabolic condition. Have to take medicine for it daily. Made me too weak to scoop. Now I just sell popsicles. Want a couple? "'Sure,' I said. Paul got up and walked around the counter. "'What you want? Orange? Cherry? I got grape, too.' "'Well, I'll take orange. That's my favorite,' I said. "'Yeah, and I'll, I'll have grape, Mr. Freeman,' said Jim. And Esther handed Mr. Freeman a dollar. He waved it off. "'That's all right, Esther. No charge. This is a special occasion.' Mr. Freeman walked back around the counter and gave us our popsicles and a couple paper napkins." This is a special day to see Stevie again. You know, I have something for you. Something I've been saving for a long time. Let me get it. Mr. Freeman walked to an unseen room in the back. He called to us. People don't come in here like they used to ever since I got my metabolic condition. He walked back into the store holding a large manila envelope. Boys... Try to avoid getting a metabolic condition. Changes your life. Changes everything. Yes, sir, I said. Mr. Freeman sat back down in the rocker and carefully held the envelope out to me. Stevie, when I started to get my metabolic condition, I thought of you. You remember how you always came running in here saying you wanted to be an ice cream man like me? (laughs) That always made me laugh. You remember when I lifted you up and put you on a chair, showed you how to scoop? I laughed at the thought of it. <laughs> Always toward you, is what you told me. Paul laughed. That's right. Always toward you. You got more strength coming towards you. Well, I never had any children of my own, but I wanted to give you something. Something to help you in the future. Mr. Freeman handed me the sealed manila envelope. I saved this, hoping I would see you again. Of course, with a metabolic condition, you can never be sure of the future. But here you are. It's a blessing. Keep this. Open it when you feel like you run out of options. Maybe save it for your children if you have any. I looked at the envelope, excited, terrified. And whatever you do, don't lose it. Mr. Freeman laughed and rocked and shook his head. No, 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 don't lose it. It took me years to save all of this. Consider it a legacy. Yes, sir. We sat and ate popsicles. Then Mr. Friedman interrupted the sounds of slurping. Jim, anyone in your family have a metabolic condition? Uh, no, sir, said Jim. Not that I know of. You're lucky. You're lucky, boys. Once you have a metabolic condition, your life is never the same. Thank you. We finished our popsicles shook hands with Paul Freeman for the last time in my life. and We walked back across George Street, legacy in hand. That night I slept in my old bedroom, the room my brother Paul and I slept in during our summers in troop. Jim slept in what used to be Esther's room. Her old room at the end of the hallway was the biggest room in the house, the loveliest in my opinion. It still looked like something out of the 19th century, It had a small balcony that overlooked George Street. It was right above the saloon my grandfather supposedly owned, and you could see Paul Friedman's store across the intersection. Heat never reached this part of the house. Over the years, Esther kept adding quilts to the bed. Eventually, she gave up and moved to a smaller room closer to the coal-burning stove in the kitchen. Her old room always hovered between 40 and 50 degrees. That made it a perfect storeroom for apples and the occasional guest. I walked down the hall to check on Jim. He stood surrounded by bushel baskets of apples from the local orchard. The room was filled with the sweet, sweet scent of apples fresh from the tree. I asked him if he was going to be all right. Jim looked at the apples, opened his spiral notebook and laughed. Are you kidding me? This is great. Ann Esther came in with a hot water bottle. Jim, you could use this if it gets too cold. The next morning, Granny made coffee and fresh-baked muffins for breakfast. Jim sat in a corner with Uncle Ben. Ben was (laughs) instructing Jim how to cut the peel off of an apple in one continuous slice. Ben demonstrated and then gave Jim his knife. Jim came close. Ben pulled another apple out of the basket by his feet. Well, that's too bad, Jim. I thought you had it. You would have been the only person I've ever seen do it on the first attempt. You would have made the papers here in Troop. Ben looked at me and winked. Try again. You may be a natural. Well, I don't want to waste any more apples, Jim said. Ben patted him on the back. It's not a waste. Mom's making a pie later. Sidebar. What amazing people. Ben, Esther, Gran, generous, patient, loving. Growing up with kindness is the only legacy that matters. I worried all night about my envelope from Paul Freeman. I didn't want to misplace it in Gran's house and leave it in troop. I put it in my luggage. I would deal with it this evening when Jim and I were settled in in Forestburg. After breakfast and peeling about a dozen apples, Jim vanished. I sat on the porch with Ben and Esther and Gran, filled them in on life in college. Beth, how Jim and I wanted to start a theater, I was getting concerned about Jim. We still had a lot of driving to do. He finally got back from his walk around noon. Hey, everybody. Hey, Jim, where'd you go? Back over to Paul Freeman's? Nah, had to call home. You know, let him know we're all right. Ben said, well, Jim, you could have used the phone here. Yeah, but it was long distance. I was afraid the call would last a while. You know, my mom's a talker. Sure, said Ben. I hugged and kissed Gran and Esther, shook hands with Uncle Ben, who warned me not to take any wooden nickels. Jim and I climbed back in the Mustang. Jim took the wheel, and we were off on our last leg. The mountains of Pennsylvania and New York are very different from the mountains of Tennessee. They didn't seem to be one range, but several strung together, each with different characteristics. Turns out that was close to being right. An ancient sea pushed the Catskills into existence— Then a giant meteorite slammed them, and then they were squeezed and reshaped by the Ice Age. Maybe their tortured past is why so much art has come from this area. Stephen Crane, James Fenimore Cooper, and Edith Wharton wrote here. Bob Dylan and the band played here. Thomas Cole and the whole Hudson River School painted here. The place cast a spell. As we drove, I was getting more and more excited about the real start of our adventure. It was only about three hours away. So, Jim, when we get back to Dallas, you really think we'll be able to start our own theater? Well, I don't see why not. Time is right. Well, how do you think we should start, I asked. Well, we need to get someone with real experience, someone with vision to work with us. Maybe, maybe Arnone. John Arnone? Yeah. Really? I thought you wouldn't want to work with a theater department fag. He's not a fag. He's not? No. Well, he may be queer, but he's not a fag, Jim said. You lost me. Arnone is one of the few true artists in the department. The guy's a great actor, great director, designer. More than that, he's smart. He understands people. If we had a theater, he could do anything and probably do it better than anybody. Well, I agree with you, but I thought you... Listen, Rumi, I went to school at Jesuit. I spent so much time running around desks to get away from horny priests. Those guys were fags. They weren't good priests. They weren't good teachers. They were using their position to exploit the weakness of students to get their rocks off. Total fags. Our known likes men. So what? He's respectful. He loves the theater like we do. He's a good man. Not a fag. Uh, got it. You know, I always figured you for a smart guy, but sometimes, I swear, you are slow on the uptake. Yeah. I think we turn off here, Jim. Sidebar. I realized the previous conversation could be upsetting to modern ears. Each generation has their own set of insults meant to put certain people in a box. For the record... Jim McClure was not a racist or a homophobe. He often used harsh language as a smokescreen to cover a nature that could have been too sensitive for Shreveport. As a rule, it's good to remember that name-calling is usually a shorthand that tells the listener that you have run out of imagination. My heart was pounding. We had driven 1,500 miles to end up on a two-lane road in the middle of a forest looking for the right driveway to get to the theater. Jim pulled into a filling station, but we didn't need gas or directions. Why are we stopping? I just need to check one thing. Won't take a second. Jim ran into the office. Through the glass, I could see him speak to the attendant, who pointed at something behind Jim. Jim thanked him and disappeared from sight. I waited. A few minutes later, Jim came out to the car. All right, on to the theater. Jim started up the car and pulled back onto the road. It wasn't long before we saw the magical sign, Forestburg Summer Theater. We drove through more trees into a clearing, and there was a barn, a swimming pool, two big houses that looked like they were built a hundred years ago. An older man came out to greet us. He was short and balding with a shaggy crown of white hair. He wore work pants from another decade, a nasty-looking wool shirt that may never have been washed and a thick pair of bifocals. That was the good news. The bad news was he was our new boss, Al Mazel. Hey, you must be Troutman's guys from Texas. You made it. A lot of people miss a turnoff. Let me show you the theater. Mr. Mazel led Jim and me into a barn where there was a strange-looking man with frizzy black hair and even thicker glasses fiddling with some lighting instruments on the stage. That's Tony. He's our tech director. He's a genius. Tony, these are Trotman's guys from Texas. Tony looked up and said, Hey. Hey, I'm Steven, this is Jim. Jim looked at the beams holding up the roof of the barn. He ran his hand over the old red velvet-covered seat in the auditorium. Jim turned and walked out of the theater, calling back to me, Hey, Rumi, come here. I followed Jim outside, leaving a confused almazel in the theater with Tony. The genius. Jim looked around the grounds and said, Get in the car. What? Get in the car. Okay, Jim, okay. And I did. Jim cranked the Mustang and we tore down the drive back to the main road, leaving a trail of dust. What's going on, I asked. Jim didn't answer. He kept driving for another minute, then stopped abruptly at a turnout in the woods. Jim turned to me and said, get out. I don't understand, Jim. Get out of the car. I obeyed. Jim got out and walked over to me. This is shit. The place is shit. The theater is shit. That guy's a lunatic. I'm out of here. What? I'm leaving. I'm going back to Texas. What? You're going back to Texas? When? Now. So here's the deal. I want you to walk down that road there for five minutes and then walk back. When you get back here, you tell me if you're going to stay or if you're going to come back with me. Jim, if you're not back in ten minutes, I'm assuming you want to stay. I'm going to drop your suitcase with the anvils in it with the old man at the barn. Now go on. All right, go. Your time starts now. I began walking down the path into the woods. I didn't know what had just happened. I couldn't think. The woods didn't help me. They didn't resemble the woods by the creek I knew when I was a boy. I looked up at the tops of the trees. I looked at a line of ants on the ground. I was looking for some kind of reality, anything to grab onto, but there was nothing. I was adrift. I assumed I had no choice but to go back with Jim. Otherwise, I was stuck. No car, no lifelines. I sat on a big rock. Some birds flew overhead. I had no idea what to do. It was hopeless. I headed back to the Mustang. On the way, I grabbed onto a couple scattered ideas from the wreckage of this road trip. I came here to do Shakespeare. I came here to do Tennessee Williams, Oscar Wilde. I could still do that. I got the job by treating our director, our friend, With cruelty. I owed Ron Troutman something, otherwise, his humiliation meant nothing. But if I went back, I could spend the summer with Beth. I stepped out of the woods. Jim was looking at his watch. So, what's a word, O mighty one? I'm staying. I see, said Jim. I came here to do plays. I'm going to do plays. Right. Get in the car. I'll drive you back. We drove back down the roadway, back down the drive to the theater, and stopped in front of the barn. We stood there in a cloud of dust as Al Mazel came out of one of the big houses. What the fuck was that? Maisel said. It was the sound of one hand going like this. Jim shot Al the finger. Al charged Jim, you put that finger away unless you want me to bite it off. And you shut up, old man, I'm out of here. My friend is staying, you treat him well. Oh, by the way, your place is shit. Jim opened the trunk, dragged my suitcase out and left it in front of the barn. He came up and hugged me. Have a good summer, Rumi. Sorry, can't do it. Jim got in the Mustang, gave it some gas and was gone. 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 I stood there alone with my suitcase in the swirling dust. Al Mazel came up to me. Look, as far as I'm concerned, you can get your hat and coat and get the hell off the place, too. Jim left. Not me. I'm here. I came here to do theater. Maisel calmed down a little. I think your friend Mr. Troutman is in the rehearsal hall. Why don't you go say hello? He's been waiting for you guys. Right. I walked past the barn to another shabby looking wooden building in the middle of a field of waist high weeds. I could see Ron inside directing. He turned and saw me and waved enthusiastically. He walked as fast as he could manage to greet me. Tobo hooray! Tobo is here. Where's McClure? Up at the barn? Uh no, Ron, he's gone. Gone? Yeah. He just took off. He did? Ron looked concerned for a moment and then said, Well, screw him. We're going to have so much fun this summer. I can't wait. Where's Beth? What do you mean? Well, I thought for sure you'd bring her. I didn't. I didn't think I could. Ron slapped my arm. Well, that wasn't very nice of you. You know, there could be parts for her in Midsummer and Tom Jones. There's a phone up at the big house. Give her a call. We don't have any money, but I'm sure we could feed her and get her a place to stay. I hugged Ron until he began to lose his balance. Stop it! Stop it! He said, go, go, call her. God, Ron, thank you. Thank you. As the sun set behind the big house, I walked in search of a phone. Everything's a prison, and everything's a doorway. Leaving, leaving me behind
0: that was building a character a series of stories told by actor stephen Tobolowski, and you're listening to the Tobolowski files Stephen, here's a guarantee I'll make you. I will never leave you across the country by the side of the road. Uh, I'm definitely uh, not going to do that. I so appreciate
1: that, and and I don't think I would even trust your car to uh, go across the country.
0: I, I, <laughs> well, I have I have gotten a better car since the last time we uh, I had to drive you. But in any case, uh, Stephen. Uh, Where can people see you live in the coming weeks? Uh, You're still doing some book stuff.
1: I'm still doing book stuff in the Los Angeles area for my adventures with God. I think uh, the first uh, date will be at the Skirball on June 8th. That's a Thursday, the the Skirball Auditorium. That's a really lovely theater. And then on June 18th, I'm going to be at Theater 40 in Beverly Hills. We're gonna be doing a benefit for the theater. And uh, there'll be books available both places. I'm going to be doing stories, different stories at both places. So if you're in the Los Angeles area, you could come to both shows, actually, and uh, different stories, and there'll be book signings.
0: Find more episodes of this podcast at Tobolowskifiles.com. Find more tour dates at StephenTobolowsky.com. Stephen, spell it for us, won't you? Yes, that is Stephen
1: with a P-H, please. And then Tobolowski would be T as in Tom, O, B as in boy, O, -O L-O-W-S-K-Y.
0: That's the Russian spelling. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Tobolowski Files. We'll see you next week. Adios.